0: You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the newsroom to you live. Good morning and welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm Michael Duffy, opinions editor at large. Our guest this morning is a former Republican congressman from Georgia and the former Speaker of the House of Representatives from 1995 to 1999, Newt Gingrich. Welcome back to Washington Post Live, Mr. Speaker.
1: Good to be with you, Michael.
0: I want to start with the news this morning, if we can. Uh, There have been mass shootings in three different places, four, really, in the last three or four days in L.A. at a dance studio, uh, two in San Mateo, California, at uh, farms, and, uh, of course, one in Des Moines at a youth center. Uh, What can be done about this problem?
1: Well, look, I think we have to confront the reality that we have a combined mental health and drug addiction problem and that a great deal of what's going on is a profound change in the way people relate to each other. Uh, we just saw this morning on Fox & Friends a weatherman who had been beaten up in the subway trying to protect an elderly person who was being attacked. Uh, the fact is, whether whether it is the strength of the new marijuana, whether it is the rise of fentanyl and other kind of drugs, the level of hostility and anger uh, that's out there is extraordinary. Uh, And it manifests itself in violence in ways that are horrifying. So I think uh, personally that we're going to have to come to grips with the degree to which we have tolerated uh, destructive deviant behavior uh, in ways that threaten the very fabric of our country and threaten the lives of every single American.
0: So does that have anything to do, in your view, with gun laws?
1: No, it doesn't. In fact, if you look at the states where these things are happening, they all have very strict gun laws. New York has a strict gun law. Chicago has a strict gun law. California has a strict gun law. Uh, the fact is that there are much, and, and a lot of the states that have concealed carry or open carry have a lot less violence uh, because people understand that there are folks around them who will not tolerate it. So uh, I, think, I think focusing on the gun is to misunderstand what the core problem is. The core problem is a combination of mental illness, uh, drug addiction, uh, and the fact that we keep putting violent people back on the street. Uh, I think the teenagers in New York who were beating up the weatherman on the subway had all just gotten out of jail once again because of New York's no bail provision. So, you know, if you lock up people who are determined to be evil and people who are determined to be destructive, you have a lot fewer people on the street who are evil and destructive.
0: Let's talk now about the debt ceiling. Uh, The U.S. is close to surpassing its legal debt limit. Uh, House Republicans have taken the position that uh, they want to see cuts in the budgets before uh, agreeing to an uh, increase in the debt limit. That's a strategy I believe you've endorsed. Uh, can you talk to us a bit about what cuts you would advocate in such a scenario?
1: Well, let's just start with not spending the $150 billion in unobligated COVID emergency funds that's just sitting out there in the bureaucracy. That, that isn't even there's another $500 billion that's obligated but not spent. But just start with the not the unobligated $150 billion. Remember, if you think in terms of a 10 year budget, which is what the conservatives have called for balance the budget by 2033, you save about in interest payments about 16% of every dollar that you don't spend this year. So $150 billion that is sequestered that's already been sitting there in the bank available to be sequestered, that turns out to be $174 billion less than we owe in 2033. So I'd start with a series of things like that. Personally, I think we ought to go back to an American energy independence policy that would generate several billion dollars of additional revenue without taxes. Uh, I would also advocate going back to the 1996 welfare reform bill. If you're able-bodied, you ought to be working If you're going to get any money from the federal government, you look at what that did in the late 90s. It put children at the largest single increase of children leaving poverty because their parents got a job. It also saved an enormous amount of money. People went from taking tax dollars to paying taxes because they were working. Uh, I could go through 10 or 12 or 13. I remember we did balance the budget for four straight years, the only time in your lifetime that was done. And we were actually on track when I left office to pay off the federal debt by 2009. And Alan Greenspan, the chairman of the Federal Reserve, had a study group working on how you would manage the currency if you had no debt. Uh, so I think it's possible to get to a balanced budget by, by 19, 2033, uh, And I think you could start this year with a series of agreements. I mean, why would Biden oppose sequestering $150 billion that's currently unobligated. That's a pretty easy way to start reducing spending uh, without anybody feeling any pain at all.
0: You know, uh, since 1960, I think the Congress has uh, raised the debt limit some 75 or 80 times. Uh, You had to do it a couple of times yourself, uh, and I'm sure you voted for it more than that or against it. Uh, Is there a better way to do this as a country? Should we go through this dance year after year after year?
1: We should go through it because this was a point of leverage which we used with Bill Clinton. He ultimately agreed uh, to go to a balanced budget in seven years scored by the Congressional Budget Office um, because we were so tough. And you may remember, we closed the government twice. Everybody in the news media said that was terrible. It was a huge mistake. The fact is, the first reelected House Republican majority since 1928, the first majority in 68 years, came after we closed the government because people realized we were serious. Well, there's a new Scott uh, Rasmussen poll out that something like 58% of the country says do not raise the debt ceiling without spending cuts. Uh, And that's because people get it. Uh, And I would say that Uh, My position is, and I hope the House Republican position is, we want to pass a debt ceiling, but we want to pass a responsible debt ceiling. And that means a debt ceiling that starts moving us on track to a balanced budget. Now, Biden may be for an irresponsible debt ceiling. But remember, in 2011, as vice president, he sat in negotiations and he negotiated a debt ceiling that had significant spending changes. So he can't say it's never been done because he personally did it.
0: Uh, How do you think this is going to play out, and over what time period?
1: Oh, I think that uh, Speaker McCarthy is going to win. I think it's very significant that Senator Joe Manchin has called Speaker McCarthy and said, you're right, can we get together? I think you're going to see some other centrist senators starting to say, look, we got to do something. I mean, when you look at the spending cycle that Biden and the left wing has us on, it's clearly unsustainable. Uh, And it's clearly going to ultimately cost our children and grandchildren a huge amount. At the rate we're going right now, we'll end up spending more just to pay interest on the debt than we'll pay for national defense. Now, that is an irrational position for a country to let itself uh, get into. And if a family did that, you'd tell them they need counseling pretty badly.
0: Let's talk about spending in Ukraine. The new speaker, Kevin McCarthy, has said that he would not give the Biden administration a blank check On Ukraine. What does that mean? And uh, what is is your position on whether to continue to fund Ukraine at the levels that have been uh, occurring, particularly with respect to weapons?
1: Look, I think, first of all, it's totally reasonable and legitimate for the American people to want to know that their money is spent well, that it's not corrupt, uh, that it's actually getting a job done. And in that sense, what uh, Speaker McCarthy said is totally reasonable. If we're going to send billions of dollars somewhere, shouldn't we find out whether or not it's actually working and whether or not it's actually doing good? Second, I think it's tragic the way the Americans and the Western Europeans have dribbled out aid to the Ukrainians, allowing Ukrainians to die while we mess around. You know, this whole thing with the German Leopard 2 tank, Uh, from my perspective, if we had to send, you know, if we had to, to buy from the Egyptians who have probably the largest collection of M1 tanks in the world. Uh, if we had to ship American M1 tanks, which are extraordinary weapons, uh, to Ukraine, do it. Do whatever it takes to allow the Ukrainians to win. But this idea of bleeding the Russians by bleeding Ukrainians while we dribble out weapons to them is, I think, immoral and wrong. We've had a year to to build up our, our capability. And frankly, we're discovering our industrial base is now so weak that we may be out of 155 ammunition for our artillery rounds. We're literally out of Uh, we may may be incapable of defending Taiwan based on the rate at which we're using up our equipment, because our industries are now so weak, so bureaucratic, and the process of of contracting is so stupid that we can't go to the kind of wartime mobilization that made us the most powerful nation in the world in World War II.
0: So you'd advocate sending tanks, uh, the M1s, immediately?
1: I would advocate getting everything to them as fast as possible, getting them trained as rapidly as possible, and giving them the ability to defeat the Russian army and to drive it out of Ukraine. Uh, I think that to dribble this out and have people die every day while the politicians and diplomats meet in fancy hotels to talk about whether or not they're ever going to do anything. I think it's immoral and tragic.
0: Let's talk a little bit more about the House of Representatives you once led. Uh, did the process of uh, electing a new speaker result in concessions uh, in the powers of the speaker's office that are going to make it harder to govern?
1: No, I, you know, I actually think, and I wouldn't wouldn't have said this before it happened, but I actually think that the fifteen rounds that it took Kevin McCarthy to become Speaker McCarthy actually was good for him. Uh, it proved to his conference that he had staying power. Uh, everybody knew a fight was coming. If he'd won on the first round, they'd all been sitting around waiting for the fight. Now they've had the fight. And I think it ended up being unifying in ways that are surprising. Uh, two of the votes of the first week were very bipartisan to set up a China committee and to cut off China from our Strategic Petroleum Reserve. On both of those, I think he got a majority of the Democrats to vote with him, something that Pelosi never did with the Republicans. At the same time, I think that the Uh, people exaggerate how much he gave up. Look, McCarthy was always going to be weaker than Pelosi because Pelosi ran a dictatorship. Uh, uh, He has about the same level of power I had. Dan Meyer, who's his chief of staff, was my chief of staff. Meyer knows exactly how we operated in the House. I think he's very comfortable that uh, Speaker McCarthy, as long as he has the support of the Republican conference, will be able to be a fully competent speaker in the traditional pre-dictatorship model. He won't be as powerful as Jim Wright tried to be, and he won't be as powerful as Pelosi got to be. Uh, But frankly, that's pretty sick. I, I don't want a speaker to have the level of power that Nancy Pelosi had. That's wrong for America
0: you uh one of the things that he had to agree to to become speaker at least it was part of the deal he made was to go to uh, a more commonly used thing called an open rule which allows for other members to bring amendments to the floor in the house that's normally fairly controlled but when you were speaker you had an uh open rule policy for a very long time for most of your four years as speaker uh talk to us about why that uh, both works and can and can run into trouble
1: well, I mean, first of all, you run into a little bit of trouble because the other party does everything they can to find clever amendments and to try to embarrass you. So you got to be prepared to, dominate you know, you've got to be prepared to defeat them in debate and to dominate the floor. Uh, but I'm very proud of the fact that if you look at the last 20 or 30 years, the most open Congresses were the two that I was speaker of, and we did it in part because I I really believe every individual member, all 435 are duly elected by their voters and they deserve to be heard and they deserve to have an opportunity to be part of the process. Uh, and I'm glad that that uh, Speaker McCarthy is doing this and I think frankly, it's the right thing for America. So uh, I, I don't see that as a problem. And now that means it's harder to manage. The committee chairmen don't like it because they like to write the bill in the committee, run ram, ram it through the house, not have to deal with all these other members. But, excuse me for a second. But the fact is, um, It's good for the country, and it just makes life a little bit harder for the leadership. Well, you know, if you're not willing to do the job, don't apply.
0: (laughs) Speaking of leadership challenges, uh, the House has expelled only two members uh, in the last 40 years, and it may not be more than two or three more in the last 150 years. Uh, How do you think the George Santos saga uh, will end?
1: Well, I think that we should hold George Santos to the same level of honesty as Joe Biden.
0: What does that mean for the speaker?
1: Well, if I were the speaker, that's what I'd say. Uh, Give me a list of the 700 or 800 times Joe Biden has lied. Now, let's look at the number of times Santos has lied. If Biden agrees to to resign because he's a liar, then we'll talk to Santos. But if Biden gets to stay as president despite lying all the time, why is Santos a special case? And for that matter, look at Adam Schiff. Adam Schiff lied to the country knowingly as chairman of the Intelligence Committee, lied about Trump, lied about the Russian dossier, lied again and again and again. Now, why is there a different standard for Santos than there is for Schiff? I mean, as a Republican, I get a little tired of the news media siding with whatever left-wing or kook comes along, including the current president, uh, hiding uh, Hunter Biden's various and sundry lies and foreign dealings, uh, and then telling and, and hiding Joe Biden's secret documents, which were found before the election and then covered up. Uh, so I'm, I'm very uh, not I'm unwilling to deal with Sanders as an isolated case. You get Biden to agree how often he lies. We'll talk at Sanders. But if I would say to the House Republicans do not get sucked into this dual game where you have a president who's a liar. You have a chairman of the House Intelligence Committee who's a liar. But you your freshman candidate, boy, that's really a serious problem.
0: Okay, I just want to make sure. Do you really mean to equate the lies of George Santos with um,
1: Adam Schiff? With who? With Adam Schiff. Schiff. Yeah. Yeah. Adam. Adam Schiff knowingly, as chairman of the, of the Intelligence Committee, knowingly lied to the American people again and again and again about the president of the United States. Now, why isn't that an expellable offense? If we're going to go to that kind, of, I'm not for expelling him. I think what. Uh, Chairman, what what Speaker McCarthy is doing is right—just kicking him off the Intelligence Committee. But I think that what I think Schiff what Schiff did was despicable, uh, was a betrayal of his oath of office, uh, and was a, a dishonored the entire system. And I think, frankly, with with Biden, uh, the amount we're going to find out—you know—you still don't know who's financing the Biden Center at the University of Delaware. You still don't know. What the University of Pennsylvania did with over 50 million dollars in Chinese communist money while Biden had a center at the University of Pennsylvania. Uh, So to tell me that somehow uh, this freshman is a real problem, but the President of the United States and his son dealing with Russia, China, Ukraine, uh, the President of the United States lying about what he's doing, uh, that's not really a problem?
0: About a month ago, uh I believe you described the president as uh, almost inevitably the second term candidate for the Democrats. Uh, you still think that?
1: Sure, I think when you have several trillion dollars to spend, and you have an enormous federal bureaucracy, and you have thousands of uh, lobbyists who want want your favor, and you have many wealthy people who want to, to be invited to the White House, you look, I mean, Jerry Ford beat Ronald Reagan for the nomination. Uh, Jimmy Carter beat um, Teddy Kennedy for the nomination. Incumbent presidents are tough. Uh, and I think that the idea that somebody's going to come in, mean, who's going to come out of the woodwork, raise the money, and run against Joe Biden if he wants to run again? Unless, of course, uh, what we learn about the, the the documents that are secret, what we learn about the University of Pennsylvania, what we learn about the University of Delaware, what we finally learn about Hunter Biden's various illegal activities. If all of that comes together and crushes him, uh, then he won't be able to run. But if he can run, uh, he will be the Democratic nominee.
0: If, if he, uh, Biden turns out to be as vulnerable as you suggest he may be. Um, who, in your view, in your party, is the best to take him on?
1: Well, I think the person most likely to take him on is Donald J. Trump. Uh, if you look at Trump, he went up 15 points in favorability in the last month. Uh, when President Trump, is disciplined and focused. He is one of the most formidable politicians in American history. When he's undisciplined and says things that are that are frankly goofy, uh, he undermines himself. But any anybody who came out of nowhere beat 16 other candidates. Some of them very formidable: Jeb Bush, John Kasich, Ted Cruz, uh, Lindsey Graham. I mean, these were not trivial people. Uh, he beat all of them. Uh, I would argue that. Had the establishment not gone all out to destroy him in 2020, he probably would have won in 2020. So to to write him off is, is, I think, silly. Now, there are other great candidates, certainly Governor DeSantis, Governor Youngkin. Uh, There are a number of other people who could run. Ted Cruz could run. I mean, people are capable. It's a free country. Lots of people get to come and play. But if you had to say today, the most likely nominee clearly uh, is Donald J. Trump.
0: You endorsed Trump in May of 2016. Do you plan on endorsing Trump again?
1: Look, I am very close to President Trump. McAllister is very close to him. Uh, We've been friends for many, many years. Uh, My expectation would be that I would help him every way I could, but I'm not right now in the endorsement business. I'm happily chatting with you. I'm writing a new book, which will come out in June, called March to the Majority, which is about uh, how we actually created the majority in 1994. And the lessons we learned negotiating with Bill Clinton. Uh, so, you know, that, that's a good ways off, but I certainly talk with the president regularly, advise his team regularly. And I think he's very formidable. And I think if you look at the, the, the kind of uh, situation we were in economically and in other ways prior to his leaving office, and you look at the mess we're in now, you can make a pretty good case uh, that a second Trump presidency would be a lot better than a second Biden presidency.
0: Uh, you're 79. The president is 80. Uh, is uh, Are you guys too old to be president?
1: You know, Henry Kissinger is 20 years older than me. And I called Henry one day. I, I do a podcast called Newt's World. And I called Henry one day and got him to agree to do the podcast because he had a new book coming out at 99. And I said, you know, Henry, I'm now 79 and I'd like your advice on aging. And he said, you're way too young. He said, "I'm not having this. Call me in a decade. I'm not having this conversation right now." And at 99, he's now writing a new book. Uh, I would say Conrad um, Adenauer was formidable at 93 as Chancellor of Germany. Uh, you know, I I don't think Biden is nearly as senile as he pretends. I think part of that is a gimmick on his part to get us to think that he doesn't quite know what he's doing. Well, he you know wins the presidency, runs over his opponents, passes trillions of dollars in spending. Uh, and uh, protects his son while his son deals with the Chinese and the Russians and Ukrainians. Uh, so I, I would never—and I wrote a piece saying don't underestimate him. Uh, for his, from yeah. his standpoint, on his terms, he had a very effective two years. may have been bad for the country, but it was very good for the left. Talk
0: a little bit about how the Republican Party has changed since you were speaker.
1: Uh, it's more populist. It is more nationalist. Uh, it's angrier at Washington. Um, I think has a deeper sense of how sick the system is. Uh, it watches a corrupt FBI uh, protect Hillary Clinton and then go after Donald Trump and then protect Hunter Biden. Uh, it watches uh, the Department of Homeland Security totally fail to protect the border. Uh, it uh, has a sense, you know, the Republican Party is the base of the people who believe that Washington is out of control and that the government is waging war on the values of the American people. Uh, and I think part of that's been a reaction to how the left has evolved. It's mutated into a, a stunningly hostile uh, and uh, ma- in many ways to totalitarian system uh, which uh, if you don't teach what it wants, it fires you. if you don't say what it wants, it drives you out of public life. Uh, and I think you've seen a corresponding rise on the right of people who are deeply offended and deeply troubled. and candidly, some of us were wrong. I mean I, I I thought NAFTA would work better than it did. I think, in retrospect, Trump's renegotiation was right. I thought opening up China would work and that uh, Deng Xiaoping's model would lead to a more modern China. It hasn't happened. It's actually a clear Leninist totalitarian state and a threat to all of us. Uh, So, in some ways, uh, those of us who used to be in charge have to bear some responsibility for why people are angry and and why they're concerned.
0: Given those... Deep divisions. Uh, do you see much room for compromise in the next two years? And if so, where?
1: No, look, there's a lot of room. I want. Well, right after I was became speaker, I gave a uh, speech at Heritage. This was literally right after the election, the Friday after the election, and I said, uh, "I will cooperate, but I will not compromise." And I think that's the position that Speaker McCarthy should take. Uh, he should. He should negotiate directly with. President Biden and no one else. I've negotiated directly with President Clinton. I didn't negotiate with anybody else. Uh, He should be very pleasant, very calm. When it's possible, we should cooperate. But we should not compromise any of our core values. And we should accept that tension is inevitable when you have a hard-left president surrounded by hard-left advisors doing things that we regard as crazy, and when you understand that they have the same attitude towards us, well, you're not going to go to a tea party and suddenly be friends. But you can get a lot of work done. Uh, Clinton and I met 35 days in order to get to a balanced budget, uh, and it was tough. It was, it was, but it was pleasant. I don't know that Biden can be pleasant the way Bill could, but Bill Clinton was actually a very pleasant guy to deal with, uh, and you could, you, you know, you couldn't trust him very much, but he was. Uh, He would sit in the room, we'd have good conversations, we'd work our way through issues, uh, and we got a lot done together. If you go back and look at how much we got done in four years, it was pretty amazing. Uh, And it's because we we both understood a key thing. Under our Constitution, if he didn't sign it, it wasn't going to become law. And if we didn't pass it, he didn't have anything to sign. And so we had a mutual vested interest, if you were serious about the country, in figuring out what we could agree on, not what we're going to fight on. And we tried to keep the two separate.
0: And if you were gonna advise the Speaker McCarthy about where to look for room to do that with Joe Biden, where would you urge him to look? Immigration, well, I, foreign affairs, I'm just, what, what, what comes to mind? Look, you know the I mean, I, landscape I, as well as anyone.
1: I, I think first of all, you, you've got to start with, you know we we tried to practice, listen, learn, help, and lead in that order. Uh, and we tried to build a box and, and the box would be one side was what I had to have, one side was what he had to have, one side was what I couldn't have, and one side was what he couldn't have. And in the middle, there was something you could work on. So I would say, first of all, is Biden willing to at least sit down with McCarthy and spend hours talking through creating that kind of a box? Where can they, you know, As I said a while ago, why would Biden say no negotiation of any kind on the debt ceiling, other than as a negotiating ploy? But if he really means that as a policy, he is going to force a crisis, because he can't get a clean debt ceiling out of the House. I don't think it's possible.
0: One more question about room for compromise here, Mr. Speaker. That is, on immigration, there's been, uh, even when you were Speaker, uh, plenty of room for both sides to get part of what they want in your box. Uh, But that has become much harder, as you know, over the last 25 years. Um, Would you advise them to look there or stay as far away from it? as they can.
1: Oh, look, I mean if you can't get Biden to agree that we have a border and you can't get him to agree that we have an absolute obligation to control the border, uh, what's the base for a conversation? I mean this has been a policy of insanely open borders, millions of people coming coming in, fentanyl pouring into the country. We lose we lose more people to drug overdoses annually than we lost we lose twice as many people annually to drug overdose as we lost in the entire Vietnam War. If you had, for the last 10 years, a drug overdose wall that was next to the Vietnam wall, it would run 1.1 miles. Now, if President Biden can't agree to stopping fentanyl, to saving our children, to controlling the border, what's what's the base for a conversation? And that's why I think you've got to go through it step by step. Just agree, okay? We're going to fight over that. We're going to pass it. There's no question the Republican House will pass something to control the border. And there's no question that every border governor will probably end up being for it, except maybe Arizona. Uh, and so I think you have to look at that and say, you, you know, is there anything Biden can agree to? And and I candidly, they're so locked in on the left, they're much harder to deal with, I think, than than uh, Bill Clinton, because Clinton was a sort of an Arkansas moderate compared to uh, where Biden is.
0: One last question. We only have about a minute left. You used to teach history. Perhaps you're still teaching, um, but I know that was one of your one of the many hats you wear over the years. If you were in front of a class today, how would you describe or explain to your students January 6th?
1: I would say that uh, the uh, Speaker of the House, who had an obligation to protect the Congress and the Capitol, refused to follow the intelligence leads, refused to call in the National Guard, and refused to beef up the police force. I would say a riot occurred, and everybody who was involved in the riot should be punished. Uh, But to go from there to some absurd uh, overclaim, such as the January 6th committee did, I think is an absurdity.
0: All right, Mr. Speaker, uh, great to hear from you again. Uh, Great to see you. Thanks for talking to us here at Washington Post Live. Um, We really appreciate the time
1: given us. I've always admired your work, and I'm delighted to be with you. Thanks for listening. For more information on our upcoming programs, go to WashingtonPostLive.com.